Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, We are continuing in our series in the book of Mark. Last week, we saw Jesus in his ministry on earth, experiencing rejection from his hometown as he sought to live out God's calling on him. And we reflected on how God's calling to the church, to us as God's people, to make known the good news of the kingdom of God coming through Jesus might also include for us opposition and rejection. Um, What I want to talk about this morning is what ought we to expect as we live out this mission of the church. In order to get to where my real concern is this morning, let me tell you a little bit of my own story. Uh, I was a new Christian back in the 1980s. And I was brought into a movement uh, that would uh, be called evangelical Christianity back then. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing today, uh, but let me tell you what it meant for me back then and uh, what I think it still means for lots of people with lots of caveats about politics and, and, and uh, culture war. Uh, here's what it meant to me. It meant that the Bible was God's word. It meant that the centrality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and particularly his death on the cross for our salvation, was the centerpiece of the Christian message. And that people had to respond personally and individually to that message with faith in order for them to gain salvation. And that because of Jesus' love, we are called to love the world and to engage in it by sharing this message and by caring for the world as we may. And that's what it meant to me. The church that I was brought into had held those values. And this was in contrast to some other movements. If you study in 20th century uh, his, uh, Protestant history, you'll see that there was in the early 20th century a movement called modernism that thought that the Bible and the cross were antiquated and irrational religion that needed to be reinterpreted, that rationalism had, had brought us out of an adherence to these things. And that Jesus' mission was to do good to others as well as we knew as human beings. In response to the modernist movement, there was a movement, again, within Protestant Christianity called fundamentalism. Uh, We know this word much more broadly today as it's it's, uh, used for religious movements, but in in the early 20th century, it was those who believed in the fundamentals of historic Christianity. And they responded to modernism by retreating into their own church, defending truths of things like the Bible uh, is, is the word of God and the cross is central. They, they said things like the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the resurrection are really important and we need to hold to those things as Christians. Um, but they also separated from the world in a desire to, to escape from the confusion of modernism. They wanted to protect church doctrine and purity while critiquing the culture without much meaningful engagement. And from the context of this fundamentalist, modernist divide, evangelicalism, technically it's neo-evangelicalism. If you're a historian, evangelicalism is an older movement. That, uh, but neo-evangelicalism in American Protestantism emerged in after the World War II as a movement of people who 
believed the things that I was brought into and held to the things that I was brought into. Um, And here's the thing, right? Uh, As this project has gone on, how do we hold to these truths and yet engage in the world in loving, compassionate way? I have a concern that has been growing in my heart for the last, well, 20 years probably, but, uh, uh, but today we're going to talk about it. And here's the concern. Let me try to say this as clearly as possible because this is what's going to shape what we look at this morning. In our desire to love our neighbor and our world, in order to share Christ with them and to engage the world with compassion and care, we have bought into an implicit promise that if we love well enough, if we explain the gospel clearly enough and winsomely enough, if we care with enough compassion, then the world we live in will accept us and embrace us and value us as a good part of community and the world that we live in. That's the promise that I think has crept into this movement of Christianity that we belong to. And is this promise true? I believe that our passage in Mark 6 will illuminate this. I believe that Mark is going to help us think through this a little bit. Uh, So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, we're starting in verse 14. It's on page 790 in your pew Bibles. And uh, as we turn there, we're going to look at... um, Oh, a very interesting passage. So um, let me go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll pray... And then we will uh, jump in. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, and it means the growing popularity and effect of Jesus and his disciples in their ministry in Galilee. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, and some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning uh, to know, uh, Lord, the value of your word. Uh, Lord, for we look at this passage and it is a strange one. Um, And we need your help to understand what it is that you are saying to us through it. Uh, And Lord, how it might, Lord, shape us, uh, Lord, your people this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at this in in two steps. First, we're going to look at what this particular passage tells us, and then we're going to pan out a little bit and look and talk a little bit more broadly about what the New Testament tells us about how we live out our mission. So let's look at this passage together. Um, First of all, this passage tells us about following Jesus, and you might be thinking, why does it tell us that? Well, because... Mark has given us one of his sandwiches. We've talked about this before. Mark likes to make narrative sandwiches where he starts a story and then he tells another story in the middle and then he put, brings it around back to the story at the end. And the story here is the sending out of the apostles. That's what happens in verses 7 through uh, 13. Jesus sends out his apostles. And then you, if you look at the very end... In verse 30, the apostles come back to Jesus. So this is the meat of the sandwich about the apostles following Jesus on his mission to make good news, make the good news of the coming of the kingdom uh, to the world, right? And the message is sobering when you look at what this meat says, because I think the point of this story, what Mark wants us to know, is that faithful participation in Jesus' mission means suffering and even death because we live in a world that is opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. And it teaches us that through the example of John the Baptist, right? So this story begins in verse 14 with Jesus becoming known to Herod and people speculating. Now, before we go on about that speculation, we have to make sure we know who is Herod because there are three Herods in the Bible, right? There are actually a lot more Herods in the first century. There are three Herods in the Bible. There's Herod the Great or King Herod who was the Herod of Jesus' birth uh, period. So in Matthew 1, right? There's Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch who is Herod during Jesus' life and death. And this is the Herod that we're dealing with today. There is then Herod Agrippa, who shows up in the book of Acts, starting in Acts 12 and going on from there. So those are the three Herods in the Bible. And we just want to know, this is the middle one, okay? And... This, he was the king over, the, the Jewish ruler over the region of Galilee where Jesus was doing ministry. And as Jesus' ministry was gaining popularity, he heard of him. And people were speculating, what is this? Maybe it's the return of Elijah who was taken up into heaven. Maybe it's another one of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Or maybe it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Or maybe that doesn't really mean that they thought he was resurrected. But just, it's the second coming of John the Baptist. It's the next one in a person in a line of people who are going to cause me trouble 
And this occasions in Herod's mind what happened with John the Baptist. And this is the story that is the centerpiece of it today, right? Because Herod remembered what happened to John, right? So starting in verse 17, Herod had imprisoned John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist walked into the best Jerry Springer moment in the New Testament, okay? Uh, This is a crazy story. We're going to put a slide up here, I think, Kate. You might be able to see it. Herod Antipas had stolen his half-brother's wife, who happened to also be his niece, to be his wife, okay? Herod the Great had 10 wives, lots of children, This shows only some of them. Philip is one of them. Herod Antipas is another one. Aristobulus is a third one. Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias is the centerpiece of this. Because John the Baptist came and said to Herod Antipas, you can't have her because she's your brother's wife. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 says that is not lawful. And Herod Antipas in fear of John's righteous claim against him, imprisoned John the Baptist. And in fear for, uh, of his wife, too. It seemed that he, was, he felt stuck, and he's like, well, I want to do something. But interestingly, when you notice it, right, <clears throat> Herod was conflicted. Because he put him in jail, but he didn't kill him, even though his wife wanted him to kill him. He said, there's something about this guy. Well, one, he seems to be a righteous and holy man, and it might be bad business to kill him, but also there was something about him. Verse 20 says he was greatly perplexed, and he gladly listened to him. There was something about John the Baptist's life that Herod found intriguing, even as he feared and hated the message that he was hearing. And so John the Baptist is in prison, being protected by the man who put him in prison from the man's wife who wanted him killed, okay? This is a great, this is a great soap opera, right? And the, so then the second scene is, and then the opportunity came, right? It is almost unbelievable in its ugliness. At a state birthday party with all the people gathered, Herodias' daughter, who is, we know from other places is named Salome, uh, she dances for the uh, assembled people. They please, or she pleases the king so much that the king makes this rash promise, I'll give you anything you want. Now look, it's not clear what kind of dance this woman danced. There's no need for us to assume that it was particularly uh, erotic or sexual. Uh, She might have been a a really young girl. Uh, She might have been just a 12-year-old. So so we don't need to over-imagine. But whatever the pleasing was, it arouses response from the king of, I'll give you anything. And the girl goes to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias, the vengeful, self-justifying woman who wanted so much to clear her name and to get rid of this gadfly who kept messing with her life, said, I want his head on a platter. And Herod shows his moral fiber by agreeing. He's like, I'm really sorry. I kind of didn't want to do this, but... I don't want to break my promise in front of my guests. And 
my wife really wants me to do this. Ah, okay, we'll just kill him. Herod was not a particularly admirable man. He listened to the voices of those around him and sought to please them. And Herodias' fear, Herodias' fear of shame and exposure and her rejection of the truth that John the Baptist spoke resulted in his death. Why did Mark put this story in here? It's a reminiscence. There's no historical, this isn't even a historical narrative. This is, rem, why did he put it in here? He put it in here so that we as readers, as we're watching the apostles go out, as we're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, can reflect on the life of John the Baptist and to recognize that faithful witness in serving Jesus may result in suffering and death because the world is opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. Look, friends. We need to recognize that this is true today as well. A follower of Jesus is often perplexing in our world. I remember when I was coming to faith, I had two friends. I've told you about them before. I'm going to keep telling you about them because God used them in my life. Bill and Becky, and I, I made fun of them, right? Because I, I rejected the message that they were talking about. And I felt judged by their lives because they were pursuing righteousness in a way that I didn't want to. And yet I was drawn to them by their love, by the light that was in their life that I saw and that I wanted. So there's this dynamic today of this perplexity and yet also this opposition. This opposition that happens in lots of different times. Uh, when I studied uh, Christian history, or, or when I studied for my senior thesis at Princeton, I did. Uh, I looked at early 20th century history of Princeton, and there used to be a statue on the Princeton campus called the Christian Man, and it was a you know strapping young man with a Bible in one hand and a football in the other, and it was the the vision of the complete scholar, athlete, you know, moral uh, moral man. It, um, but you know what happened in the ni- in the early 1920s? Um, a bunch of drunken students on, on one, one Friday night, they, they dragged the statue off of its pedestal in rejection of all of the ideals that it stood for. So in case you think it's bad on campus today, it's always been bad on campuses. Um, it's been true throughout history. I've studied this, the, the history of Hudson Taylor. In 1868, they had moved into the middle... In, into the inland to do missionary work among the Chinese people. They set up a a hospital to welcome abandoned children so they could be cared for. And yet, the people rose up against them. Accusations of, and this is a quote, they scooped out the eyes of the dying and opened foundling hospitals in order that they might eat the children. A mob was formed, the mission compound was burned, the missionaries barely escaped with their lives. And it's not just something that happens in history. In 1999, you know this story probably, 
the Australian missionary Graham Staines and his two sons were killed by militant Hindu, a militant Hindu mob who set the van that the family was sleeping in on fire. I saw this account in the, uh, uh, I found this account uh, online. The question was asked, why would anyone want to kill a missionary who dedicated his life to rehabilitating lepers and eradicating such diseases as polio and tuberculosis? We are mystified, said a senior police officer. Staines was a much-loved and respected person. His wife Gladys, who is now left with no other members of her family except her 13-year-old daughter Esther, said Staines did not have one enemy in the world, and that's what makes this mind-numbing deed all the more surprising. Atsubas Chauhan, a local Hindu activist, is not surprised. He says Staines was murdered because he was engaged in converting the substantial tribal people in Orissa. People could have killed him in a fit of rage, he reckons. Friends, this is what Mark wants us to hear. The opposition of the world to Jesus and his kingdom is real. And at times it is bad. And look, we don't need to live in a black and white world where all we do is identify the enemies and throw our verbal grenades at them. But we need to recognize that as we fulfill this mission of going out into the world to love and share with Jesus, there will always be this dynamic spiritually. And at times it will show itself in violent and irrational and terrible ways. And we need to not believe the lie that if we're just winsome enough or just caring enough or just compassionate enough that we will be accepted. So how do we go about this mission? What are some of the principles that we need to have as we, are, uh, as we uh, live this out? Um, I asked Kate to throw together a slide last minute. It's going to be up on the board because uh, we're going to run through a bunch of scriptures. Five things that the Bible tells us about how we carry ourselves as we enter into this mission in a world that's going to be uh, uh, at times in opposition to us. So here we go. First of all, don't be surprised. The scripture tells us over and over and over again that we should expect this kind of opposition. So John 15, 18, if the world hates you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A neighbor is not, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus reminded us of this. The early church knew this. Paul and, and Silas were traveling through the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples in Acts 14.22, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And the apostle Paul in Philippians 1 reminds us that it has been granted to us, the church, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. 
And the apostle Peter, as he suffered himself and ministering to a suffering church at Rome, said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though it were something strange happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now look, friends, let us not be hated or resisted for being stupid or for being hateful or for being disrespectful, okay? The aroma of Christ does not condemn others with megaphones on street corners and it does not advocate for righteousness with epithets, rage, and violence. But as we live out our calling, let us not be surprised when we live rightly for God and are not accepted by our neighbors. For this is the consistent. So first, do not be surprised. Secondly, as we engage in this oppositional context, we are called to love our enemies. Don't give in to hatred. Don't make relationships a power dynamic. Don't allow vengeance to eat your heart. As we go in not being surprised, we might respond by falling into this desire to hate back and a desire to punish those who resist us. But Jesus says, you've heard it that you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? As we face the rejection of the world, Jesus reminds us that to represent him, it must always smell and taste like the kingdom of God. It must always be seasoned with grace, with endurance and patient love towards those who oppose us. Thirdly, we are to love our neighbors. This may be inherent in what we've already said so much, but I wanted to say it again. We are to engage in the world, not retreat out of fear. So Jesus says in Matthew 22, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to them, you should love the Lord to God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we must continue to engage and not retreat or to hide or protect ourselves. How might we do this? So many different ways. We might do so through politics that help shape the laws of our land so that they would be a blessing to human flourishing. We might engage in social justice to end the work of sex trafficking in the world. We might engage in social service, becoming a mentor or serving in a soup kitchen. We might engage in the intellectual life, making kingdom, economic strategies and philosophies and thinking about how we use biotechnology for healing and for 
wholeness. We might engage in the creative life, making art and loving nature and stewarding animal life and, and doing all sorts of creative and, uh, and wonderful wings so that we might taste the aroma of Christ. And if you're not in any of these fields, in our everyday life, how do we serve those who we live next to in our apartment building, in our dormitory, on the block that we live, in our workplace, the person in the cubicle next to us, or the person that we never see in person anymore because we all work remotely, but the person that we have to interact with over Zoom, how do we love them and serve them? How do we raise our families to love the world that we live in in the name of Jesus? And as we're doing all of these good things to care, let us remember that the, the very first priority of God's people is to bear witness to Jesus, to tell the world about what God has done for us, an undeserving, sinful, fallen world in the work of Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection for our salvation, to tell the world about his love for sinners like us and for you. So we're not to be surprised by the opposition. We're to love our enemies. We're to love our neighbors. Fourth, we are to live our lives for God and not for the approval or acceptance of others. Friends, you know, Nick talked about this more last week, but I wanted to reiterate it. It's so easy, isn't it? When you know that your friend is going to reject you if you start saying, I go to church, or to talk about your faith. It's so easy to be silent, isn't it? And it's so easy to, when you go out for, uh, you know, uh, go out for dinner after, uh, <clears throat> after work together with your coworkers, it's so easy to somehow leave your Christian values behind and just go with the flow and be with your people. It's easy to blend in with the crowd. Friends, John the Baptist gives us an example here. He cared more about God's favor than he did about Herod's, even though it led to his imprisonment and ultimately his death. So the apostle Peter urges us, 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is people who, know, who don't know God, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you hear that perplexity that we saw in John the Baptist? This is what God calls us to. We will never be like those around us who don't know God if we are faithfully following Christ. We are meant to be distinct, not in self-righteousness, not in holier than thou, not in look at how great I am and golly, your problems must be because you really stink, but in humility knowing that by God's grace he has saved us out of sin and that as we pursue him we live lives that have a kind of life from God that is distinctive. And it has boundaries and it has borders and it has commands for us to follow. And we are called to be distinct in how we live that out. Living for the approval of our Savior 
and not those around us. And friends, you may feel like this is too much. This is a high calling. This is a hard calling. But the fifth thing that I want to tell you is where we go to find the ability to do this. And you know what? (laughs) It's not rock science, friends. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who has gone before and walked this very path for us. He suffered while on earth. He was despised and rejected by humanity. He was like a sheep, silent before its shearers, before his executioners. He was unjustly arrested, imprisoned, and executed, dying in shame upon a cross. And all that suffering and injustice, all that evil, and the crazy rejection and accusation, God was working for us, our redemption, our salvation. When we look to Jesus, when we see him, he is our model, he is our example, and he is our salvation. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.20, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And friends, what John the Baptist knew, and what the early apostles and the early church knew, and what the saints throughout history, across the world, have come to see, is that as we walk in this path, as we pursue God's mission in the face of opposition, even unto death, in a world that rejects Jesus, not only by our words, but by our suffering, we proclaim Jesus Christ. And in our proclamation of him, we have fellowship with him. And this is the great hope that we have in our world. That as we do this, we know that not only will we have fellowship with him in his suffering, being made like him in his death, but as the apostle says, we will also then be raised with him to a new and indestructible and eternal life with him that outweighs all of it. And this is what God has called us to do. And so my prayer is that the best of what evangelicalism has meant to me and to us will continue to be the heartbeat of who we are as Christians. That we would hold to God's Bible, that we would see the centrality of the cross, that we would love our neighbors 
for the sake of Jesus in word and deed and engage in this world until he takes us home, knowing that it will cause opposition, not believing that we will be accepted, but knowing that it is good and right to walk in Jesus' footsteps in these ways. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we um, are sobered by this message and yet also, uh, Lord, there's a part of us that is thrilled by it because, Lord, you call us to something that is beyond us and yet it is good and it is great to walk in your footsteps, to follow you, to hear your call and to respond by living for you in this world. Lord, knowing that it may cost us many things, but knowing that you are of greater worth than any of those. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters as I pray for myself, Lord, that we would have courage, that we would have humility, that we would have grace, that we would have strength to endure, to press on in this calling that you've called us to, for your glory in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.